Now in their second season, Leadership of Belief with more cigar knowledge and more leadership insights. Two great leaders smoking great cigars. Here's our host, Austin and Dice. Grab a drink and jump in with a cut and a light. Welcome to another podcast of Leadership of the Leaf. My name is Austin. And I'm Dice. And Mr. Dice, what are you smoking tonight? I am smoking a wonderful cigar that my co-host decided to share with me. Yay. It is it is an EP Carrillo Allegiance. Hey, I heard those are pretty good. Uh, it's uh, it's an excellent, excellent uh, stick. You sent a few, you sent two, so I was able to enjoy one off air before yes. enjoying one on air with our listeners and you, of course. Of course, of course, right? Um, and uh, what is the drink of choice that you are pairing this cigar with? Because I don't see your traditional Henny in front of you. Oh, oh, oh look at that. Someone's paying attention. Sir, I am going to enjoy this cigar with a Sapporo Premium Beer. Mm. <laughs> yes, sir. Fair enough. Uh, I'm, I'm more of an Asahi guy because uh, I was in Japan for a little bit, but Sapporo is a good second. Fair enough. Fair enough. I can't, I can't argue with it. Both of those sound delicious, and I'm slightly jealous. Well, maybe I'll be jealous of whatever you're smoking. What are you oh. smoking, my good friend? Oh, oh, well, I am smoking the EP Carrillo Allegiance. <laughs> what a coincidence. I love it. Weird. Weird. <laughs> Uh, and I decided to pair that with a, uh, it's a brand that I've had before, but this is a new whiskey. So it's the Holling Station, but it's a very small batch. So it's a hundred proof, uh, 50% alcohol by volume. Uh, it's basically just a blend of straight whiskeys. Um, very delicious. If you want to see the bottle, it'll be on our Instagram at leadership of the leaf and you can view it there. Oh, that's great. Now, I did a little research with the cigar after we smoked it the uh, first time. And yes. the pairing for it, it was two different pairings for it. One was a whiskey, which I believe you're, you're fucking hitting the nail on the head there. And the Weird. second one, oddly enough, was beer. Hey. But it's a different strength of beer. But I'm not a beer guy. I go with what I know. So here we are. Yeah. But uh, so obviously we got to talk about cigars. This is leadership of the leadership. Um, so what is our cigar topic? Because I feel a disturbance in my bones <laughs> about a this subject is, I don't want to talk about. This is definitely a subject that we have avoided for almost two complete seasons. Because if you if you know this or not, we're we're in the you know the the end of our season two here. We're on the second half. I do. I do now, know. Yeah, we're over yeah. halfway done. So uh, it, it, it's time. And whose fault talk is this? Talk, talk about plume versus mold. I don't want <laughs> to. It's a fight. Every single time, it's a fight. <laughs> it's a fight. Well, maybe we can dispel, dispel some rumors or something. Uh, no, everyone has their opinions, and you're either firmly in the plume camp or you're firmly in the mold camp and all this other bullshit. Fuck it. Maybe, maybe the leadership topic will make you feel better. Oh, oh, you think so? You think the, 
You think the leadership topic of evidence-based decision-making would make me feel better? What's the <laughs> evidence you're basing that on? <laughs> See how you did that? that was I, 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 I think it goes well with the mold versus bloom. I hate you. <laughs> That's fine. You can hate me. Yeah. Oh, speaking of hate. Oh. Ooh, 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 I, ooh. I got it. Be- before, before we get in. Before story we go time? On. Story time? Story time. Story oh, time. I love story time. All right, let's this story good, time it up. Good story time. Okay, so total wine and more mm-hmm. I, per- I purchased some cigars from there the kid wanted to go to a bookstore total wine and more was right next door so why not i got time to kill let's go buy some cigars that's fair i mean that is a valid point i would do the same thing all right so i picked three cigars uh one was like chili moose uh the perdomo okay. and okay. slr not not that that matters so i go to the register Hey, and the guy behind the register was like, I agree with all three of your picks. I was like, really? Even the Chilling Moose? He said, yes, the Chilling Moose, you are fine, but a price tag is going to be a good cigar. All right. I'm excited. Get home. Mm. Families the rest. Light up the Chilling Moose. Crackle, crackle. Wrapper comes off. Shitty. Just shitty, shitty, shitty. Everything <laughs> about the cigar, right? So I was like, I'm going to call them and tell them that their humidor is messed up or something. Because when I went in the humidor, it had like this damp odor smell. Ew. I understand it's, it's a moist area because of the wood. I understand that. But it was a different smell than I normally have in humidors. Right. We've been right. in the cigar game for a minute now. But the store was closed by the time I was calling. It wasn't been worthwhile. So the next day, I got a survey in my email for Total Wine and More. I was oh. like, this is How? perfect. This is great. So my thumbs went to moving. Click, clack, click, clack, click, clack. Explain what happened to the cigar, explain the humidor, explain all this stuff. Sin. About two hours later, I get a phone call from Total Wine and More. I can't remember yeah. the guy's name. I think his name was Aaron. A. Aaron. A. Aaron. Call- <laughs> you done fucked up, A. Aaron. <laughs> so he calls me up and he he's asking questions and I'm explaining what happened and he was like I've been smoking cigars for 35 years I said I'm up, I'm upward in the 20s whatever so I'm not a rookie to this explaining the whole thing he was like you know what come back down I have to give I have to replace the chilling moose for you I was like you don't have to worry about that at all I'm just happy you called I'm glad you checked your humidor settings I'm glad you checked the rest of the box I'm just content that you followed up on this survey that I did. Right, right. He said, I'm not that kind of guy. I'm not that person. I noticed you purchased a few others. We can talk about other cigars. I have some I can share with you. I have to replace the chilling moose because that's the kind of guy I am. I was like, well, you know what, buddy? I'm down. I'm, I, have I, like not went, I haven't went there yet. I go there uh, this weekend. I know we don't have time frames, but I go there this weekend. That's coming. Yep, yep, and yep. And I chit chat with him, and I actually share that I have a podcast, and I would share that I'm telling telling all our listeners that's on air about Total Wine and more, how much they care about their customers, how much they care about their surveys. Like I'm, I wasn't looking for a free cigar. No, what yeah. I what I wanted was them to fix the humidor. Right. That's what I wanted. But hey, I mean, I go chit chat with them. I'm not looking for it, but I chit chat with them to clear up the air and. High five them because that that was amazing customer service. That is that's that's dope. I want to I want to know the uh, the part two to that story. You know, I oh. want to see what happens on the back end. Like, hey, did you finally get a good cigar? Did they find something wrong with their humidor? You know, all all of the details. Uh, I can share with you now that there had to be a problem with the humidor. 
because the chili mousse I didn't put in my humidor. I smoked it right away coming from there, right? So the time, total time in my car, maybe, maybe 30 minutes. Yeah, that. Shouldn't, so that's that not, shouldn't dry it out that much. Shouldn't have any effect on it, right? Even in Vegas. The, <laughs> the other two cigars acclimated to my house, acclimated to my humidor, acclimated away from where it was stored at in the at Total Wine and More. So when I smoked them, the, uh, was one of them the next night, uh, the cigar was perfect. It burned excellent everything about it. So uh, no matter what this guy shares with me, because I'm pretty sure he's going to try to save face because he's the cigar guy. Yeah, right. Um, not not saying anything negative, but it had to be some some setting in his humidor. There's, there's no, no other option in my opinion. Or, or the, there is another option. I'm a big fat liar. The other option is I got a shitty cigar. Sometimes that happens. You get a it's shitty possible. cigar. It's possible. So we'll find out. Part two coming. Part two. Part two coming. I'm excited. All right. Let's dive in to plume versus mold. All right. All right. I started this segment off with there's lots of incorrect information about the difference between mold and plume on a cigar right yep okay yep. I'm, I'm with you I'm, I'm right there with you so i wanted to start off with this the topic that is probably numero uno the one that everyone gets the most it is the most common of these two 98 percent of the time is exactly what I, let's go 99 percent of the time it's exactly what it is mold yeah. All right. So mold can be blue, green, yellow, green, and commonly confused with plume, the white color. Did right? you just say green twice? Did I say green twice? I thought I said gray. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on um, one tonight, people. Well, uh, maybe maybe your green band on your cigar threw you off. This is a beautiful band, by the way. I do love this band. It's so pretty. All right. Uh, so there are rumors out there that mold cannot be white. Uh, that's 100% wrong. 100% wrong. Mold is alive. It tends to start in one spot and branches out from there. Uh, the very small stalks grow up and out and have spores on the end that will spread from there. Oftentimes, mold will look like webbing or fuzz, or if you break out the magnifying glass, it looks like those tiny little trees from who, <laughs> Horton Hears a Who and Whoville and stuff. <laughs> Uh, could you imagine like if he was to do that and something was waving back at, hey, hey. I think I'd probably just set it on fire just to kill everything in there <laughs> <laughs> we're not smoking it I'm just setting you on fire <laughs> because of how it grows it expands it will be splotchy uneven also uh, it will have a three dimensional look to it uh, mold when on the wrapper will look like it's on top of the wrapper and not like it's part of it. Mold can spread. Uh, I'm pretty sure everyone, I hope everyone knows that mold can spread from one cigar to another. Kind of like an STD. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's safe. What, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, except for herpes. That shit comes back to you. <laughs> uh, or they hit you with child support that didn't stay in Vegas. Big facts. Oh. <laughs> oh plume, plume is the oils within the cigar that are surfacing and crystallizing. Oils tend to do this in a uniform fashion. Since it is a crystal and it is uniform over the entire wrapper, wrapper, it will uniformly sparkle gently. Think of it this way. 
When it's very cold out and it's snowed, when you look out into a field that is lit by the moon or the, or the sun, the snow will sparkle uniformly. This concept is what the cigar, uh, cigar with prune will look like under light. Of course, it won't be as intense and it will be tobacco colored, but it will have a sparkle to it. In lower light, it will more look like a haze or a dust. The dust will actually look like it is part of the cigar's wrapper, not like it is sitting on top of it. Plume is usually evenly distributed. Meaning, you can easily dust it the fuck off. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's a little bit of plume. I, it's not like the time when I walked into a humidor at a brick and mortar. Do you remember this? I was, I've, I've, I've shared this story before. I'm going to share it again because it's relevant. I walked into a, a humidor. I started looking. And there was like... I found out some backstory after this this story took place, so I'll share that as well. But uh, so this place was operating. They had the built-in humidor system, right? Apparently, from the source that I have, that got too um, expensive to operate. So what did they do instead? They filled up buckets with water <laughs> and put them in the corners as a humidification device. <laughs> Then when I go in there and I see said buckets of water, which automatically th I thought there was a leak <laughs> in the I'm humidification, <laughs> right? I, was, yeah. I mean, they're sitting in the corners those are under the kind of humidors. I'm like, oh, this must be like a fucking, uh, th there may must be a, a like leak in the humid humidification system. Like maybe they're, it's like they're coming to get it on Tuesday or something. Nope. <laughs> that was their humidification system. I pick up a My Father Cigar. And I look at it and I'm like, I think you got mold, brother. And he goes, no, that's plume. And we're proud of our plume here. <laughs> and I looked at him, I said, plume does not look like cobwebs. You got mold. And he goes, no, you're wrong. It's plume because it's white. <laughs> I can't tell you how quickly I walked out of that humidor and just left. <laughs> Never went back. And now they're shut down huh they're shut weird. down weird right <laughs> fucking losers yeah but it's not an exact science right so it's going to depend on your on your humidification or your humidor the conditions it's stored in and of course the cigar the more oily the tobacco like maduros oscuros dark you know tend to be darker colored oily uh the more the chances are that you'll see plume once it's aged uh, but plume is pretty rare. Uh, you know, I, I haven't seen it too often. I've never had visible plume on any cigars I only I own. And uh, my humidor is only about, I think mine's only, uh, it's about two years old. Yeah. Um, that's that's kind of the point I want to hit home to a lot of people because you see the debate and stuff online all the time. And like, I got plume. Like, plume is like finding a four-leaf clover. Yeah. It can happen, but you know the the likelihood isn't very high, right? And I can tell you that plume never really manifests in the foot of a cigar. No. So if you look at the foot of your cigar and you see white, that's automatically mold. Just chuck it. Clean out your humidor. Um, but plume on a cigar and mold on a cigar are two different things and distinct things that can affect cigars. Plume, also known as bloom. Uh, is a desirable occurrence on a well-aged cigar. It appears as the fine white powdery dust on the surface of a cigar. 
plume is a result of oils and sugars rising to the surface of a cigar's wrapper over time, indicating that the cigar has been properly stored and aged. It is safe and considered a sign of quality. <laughs> so, if we're talking about signs of quality, if you was to talk about the first third of your cigar, would it Ooh. be a sign of quality? I would say yes. <laughs> I'm curious of what you are getting because I'm pretty confident we're going to be getting something different. I'm drinking a yeasty beer and you're drinking a nice small batch whiskey. Earth, leather, cocoa. There's not really a hint of pepper in this at all. I get a little bit of a sweetness. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's pretty leather. Leather is, I would say, leather is the dominating note that I get out of this. Okay. My, my dominating note is nutty to me almost like an almond yeah yeah i can see that um I'll, if i had to pick a cocoa like a milk chocolatey milk chocolatey and nutty i can definitely understand the leather so that's that's where i'm at right now yeah yeah well this is you know uh the wrapper is ecuador ecuadorian sumatra um and then nicaragua but uh yeah it's it's very 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 good because uh, i was definitely saying leather is definitely a component in there i can definitely taste i can definitely understand how you get leather mine is definitely nutty but well uh, i'm curious to how how the second third is gonna go yeah yeah i'm excited um definitely excited on this one uh this EP Carrillo had what? They had the number one cigar back in 2019, 2020 with Somewhere the Pledge. Around. Yeah. Yeah. And now they have Pledge of Allegiance, which is a, an amalgamation of these two cigars. And I oh. want it. What was that word again? Say it again. Amalgamation? It's <laughs> a great word, sir. I'm, I'm here to, you know, I'm here to educate. <laughs> Oh my goodness! I, I can't even say the word amalgamation. Yeah, oh, amalgamation. Right, you got it. That's right. right. You got it right the first time. All right. It's a combination of both those cigars. I, I like dice dummy terms. Combination, collaboration. Ice is back with brand new edition. Oh, you! I, sh I should have known not to say that. Um, <laughs> I haven't seen that cigar out for sale. I'm not saying it's not on the shelves. I no, have not seen yeah. it. Pretty sure that's the one with the hand painted box that I'm like. Oh yeah, you did show me the hand painted that. box. That is a lacquer finish too. Yeah, that I'm in love with. But it's definitely something, especially off the strength of this one. I would definitely pick that cigar up. Yeah. Well, I mean, EP Grill, they're probably blending some of the best cigars right now. Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty sure that's opinion based, and that's that, going to be facts. one I'm sharing. <laughs> uh, so on, yeah, so on 15 June 2023. Uh, Pledge of America or Pledge of Allegiance is on its way to cigar shops. Yeah, I want a box of those. Just because oh. they're hand painted, lacquer finished. I it's purely based off the look of the box. The fact that I love the pledge, I love the allegiance. I don't know why I wouldn't love the Pledge of Allegiance. <laughs> I like pledge. I like allegiance. Woo wee! <laughs> ah. Look at that. Yeah. You can't tell me that you would not just be like, yeah, uh, if you see that on the shelf, boink. Yeah. Take, yeah. Take like 
but I don't know that I want to pay the price tag. Yeah, stuff ain't cheap, my friend. But you know what? It twenty dollars a piece. You know what is cheap? You know it's very cheap. Mold. Mold. Mold is cheap. Mold on a cigar, on the other hand, is undesirable occurrence. It's definitely undesirable, right? It appears as fuzzy patches. We we said this green. Remember, I said green like a bunch of times. Mold is caused by excess moisture in the storage environment and can negatively affect the cigar's taste and aroma. Smoking a cigar with mold recommended and may be harmful to your health. I like Maybe. how you put. I, I like how you put smoking a cigar with mold is harmful to your health. Like smoking a regular cigar is potentially not harmful to your health. <laughs> hey. I was looking at a study for that. Smoking a cigar, we've talked about it before on air. Smoking a cigar is, it is slightly like 2% chance of being harmful to your health. You know what the most harmful part about smoking a cigar? Secondhand smoke. That's the funniest shit I've ever heard. Secondhand, your own cigar, secondhand smoke. So if you're one of those people that are like hotboxing in a car or some shit like that, that's where it's harmful and i'm almost certain that's probably the two percent <laughs> i'm no so doctor i am no doctor but the secondhand smoke is what's harmful but you know if you come across a cigar with either plume or mold it's essential to know which one it is and to act accordingly plume like i've already said can be brushed off gently you know, it's the dust, it's the powder. It should just be able to, you just be able to take your finger and whip, wipe it away and go, all right, cool, that's plume. While moldy cigars should be isolated from other cigars, immediately removed from your humidor and carefully disposed of, AKA chuck it in the trash to prevent <laughs> the spread of mold. Storing cigars in a properly controlled environment with the appropriate humidity levels and temperature is crucial to avoid mold growth. Mold likes hot, humid climates. So. Essentially, if you had a cigar yep. that was getting mold and yep. you notice the mold is now leaching onto other cigars because for some reason you haven't been in your humidor for a minute, um, my oh, advice... I would never do that. Right. But my advice is mm. all of those cigars, 100%. count them as a loss and then re-wipe re down your humidor, re-season your humidor. Take it out of rotation for a hot minute just so you don't have the mold spores actually in the wood grain of your of your humidor. Yeah, I mean, there's there's videos, there's articles online that tell you how to clean out the mold in your, humid your humidor. Um, you know, do, do those things, right? Like, I'm not saying bleach your humidor unless you want to smoke bleach and ammonia. <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> but, but there's way, there's like, like, you can wipe it down with white vinegar, right? That's how you clean coffee makers from mold. Wipe it down with some light white vinegar. Let it air out. Maybe do it a second time. Let it air the fuck out. Open with nothing in it. And then wipe it down with a bunch of distilled water to make sure that you got all that white vinegar out. And then maybe throw a couple test cigars in there. Yes. And, and smoke them to make sure that you don't have a vinegar taste. If you have that vinegar ammonia taste, take them out. Continue wiping it down with with distilled water to re-clean your, your, humid, your humidor. 
guys, this is gonna, it's a process. The best thing to do is to never get molded in the first place. That, that is 100% a true story, but some, I, I was gonna say, sometimes it's unavoidable, but that's not a true story. It is, it is avoidable, unless you place a cigar that has mold in it already, like a jacket. Right. Um, well, if you didn't know or didn't see. Well, yeah, or you I don't listen. I thought it was plume. You don't listen to leadership of the leaf. I can understand that happening. Yeah. Uh, my advice is to use like the the budget sticks when you're testing out. That way, you're not wasting yeah, a pledge of allegiance twenty dollars cigar on testing your humidor. Right. Yeah. Go go get some like acid cuba cubas or or <laughs> don't do fucking, that <laughs> or like factory smokes or get some factory know. smokes. Yeah. Some 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 you know uh, catalog brand esque things. <laughs> don't say, say it. Don't say it. Like like Oliva's. <laughs> Oliva's good. Just, oh, Ashton, I said it. Damn, that's cold. <laughs> it's true. It is true. No, I say uh, the reason I say Oliva. Oliva is good. But when you like go and you're like, hey, I can buy a box for eighty dollars, and they're going to give me a hundred and eighty dollars worth of free cigars. Like, how are they be able to do that, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. You kind of got to wonder. Yeah. All right. Uh, it's it's a great debatable topic, uh, especially for anyone that wants to go toe to toe about plume versus mold. Mold uh, again, it's going to happen probably out of a hundred times a hundred times plume is going to happen maybe one time out of a hundred times you know so that's how rare it is so all these people that, that come on air or on the blogs and i got plume unless they've been holding a cigar padron something for like 20 years or so i say patron because i know they got a, a high oil content i uh, i don't i'm not really buying it like i've been saving my factory smoke for over 12 years now and it's full of plume I'm not, I'm not buying it. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. Um, yeah. Are, are you in your second third? I am right on the cusp of it. I guarantee you if we was to take a break. But before we take the break, I invite our listeners to jump in the debate of uh, mode versus plume. You can hit us up on Instagram, leadership of the leap, all one word. Or you can visit the blog. Go ahead and tell us your story about how you had plume. Or how you had mold. Womp womp. Alright, <laughs> we'll be right back after this break. Alright, hey everyone. Um, thanks for listening to Leadership of the Leaf. I'm just uh, letting you know, if you want to see what kind of cigars that myself, Dice, and Austin, what we're smoking on each episode, check out our Instagram on Leadership of the Leaf. All one word. At Leadership of the Leaf. And please, leave us a comment. Send us a message with whatever questions or what you guys are smoking on. Maybe you guys have some suggestions for us that we'd love to give it a shot. At Leadership of the Leaf on Instagram. Check me out, guys, on um, on Instagram at Flavor King uh, with two G's on there. And it's been a pleasure listening to Leadership of the Leaf here with Dyson Austin. All right. Hey, we're back from that break. And Austin, Sir. I'm curious. Yes. 
what evidence do you have about oh. your second third? Ooh, ooh, my second third. Well, I have the tasting notes of my palate and the smoke that I inhale. Into you my inhale mouth, the smoke? Into my mouth, oh. not into my lungs. Ah. Dicks. <laughs> All right. Cocoa. Nutty. Coffee. Oh, that's wonderful, sir. Brown sugar. And I think that's uh, the sweetness of the cocoa with the tobacco is giving me, in my mind, brown sugar. Brown sugar. Okay, I can see that. Coffee. And my back note. My background note is leather. Hmm, interesting. All right. Yes, that is great evidence. So, people in leadership roles often have to make decisions that affect pretty much the entire company or just the team. Uh, so it's important that they have sound processes for making important choices. Usually, uh, they either, you know, they go with their gut or... You know, they try to use logic, but another one is an approach is evidence-based decision-making. This approach usually prompts professionals to use quantitative, something that's measurable and qualitative, quality of or condition of data to develop informed plans. So if I look at this and I say, hey, I need to fire somebody, what's my evidence for saying I need to fire somebody? Well, I'm not, I one, I have two, too much employee payroll for my amount of profit that I'm bringing in. Okay. Now, how do we, how do I determine who to fire? I'm going to look at the quality of widgets being produced and look at the quantity, the number of widgets being produced by that person. If I can find the lowest number of quantity with the worst quality, boom, ding, ding, ding. I found the person. <laughs> Fuck you. You're fired. Get out of here, Fred. But we love Fred. Yeah. Uh, he's got to go. <laughs> but he's a great guy. Yeah, well, he sucks at his job. So <laughs> what is evidence-based decision-making? Evidence-based decision-making is a process of using hard data, fuck you, hard data to inform decisions. It's often used by professionals, managers, leaders such as you, in work environments when making choices that impact the organization, the team, or as a group as a whole. Many professionals choose to use this approach to ensure their decisions are reasonable, unbiased, and likely to lead to a favorable outcome. That means yeah. there's no knee-jerk reactions. Correct. This, is, this approach takes time. You have to sift through data points. Um, I can tell you, I manage a program right now for quite a large number of people. And I have to sit there and figure out, is this contract that I'm managing, is it worth my while? Do I need to renegotiate the contract when it comes time? How much is it costing my company? How much is it, how much is the worth of the quality of the contract? You know, is it worth it? Is there another option that I can take? Can I reduce the, you know, the, the number, the contract amount? All of these things play into everything that I do. I'm using well, evidence-based decision-making. <laughs> well, some of these uh, evidence you might use may come from sources like professional opinions, from like experts, 
New observations and ideas from field experts found in conferences and publications and panel discussions uh, or from uh, professional organizations. They will help with your professional opinions from experts. Yeah, I remember listening to a guy and he said that I was really smart and he was obviously an expert. <laughs> oh my goodness, I need to find that guy. He was me. It was me. I was talking to myself <laughs> in the mirror. <laughs> There's also <laughs> empirical data. And that is historical data from within the company. Garner through tools like reports, tracking systems, data, all those fucking spreadsheets and stuff that people keep for years and years. Surveys. All that crap. Well, surveys kind of fit in the next one. Yeah. Well, there's also the research from reliable sources. Vetted studies published in academic journals or performed by reputable scholars. Hey, I think, um, you know, Red meat is just as healthy as white meat. Well, the study published by nutritionists and uh, chemists and everything else says that it's not. <laughs> what? What? There's thoughts and feelings. You also want to take uh, thoughts and feelings of people that have skin in the game, the stakeholders in the game. Uh, preferences of the of those affected, like the employees, the partners which they might express verbally or in written or through survey responses. These are the people that is actually ultimately going to affect. Right. If you if you're a consumer-based company, right, you're selling to consumers, maybe you do a survey like Total Wine that says, "Hey, how is your experience at our store?" and you go, "Hey, your humidor is shit. You got fucked up <laughs> cigars and I don't like it." And they go, oh, how can we fix that? And they go back and they look at their data. Hmm, is there other other surveys like this? Maybe we do have bad humidors or whatever the case happens to be. Boom. Surveys. That's evidence. Case decision making. Which is the reason why he called me. Yep. That was cool. So that do- was actually pretty cool. Uh, very cool. So how does that work, right? So evidence-based decision making typically includes three stages. You have to find or collect the evidence, you critique and interpret the evidence, and then you have to apply or practice insights. So collecting the evidence, once you've identified an issue you'd like to solve and developed a hypothetical solution, you can begin gathering evidence that can help you test your plan's likelihood of success. It's vital that you're impartial and thorough during the stage because incomplete or selective data uh, might skew your results. To ensure you're collecting data, a balanced group of data points, it's helpful to target both external and internal data. You cannot have a results bias, a bias in this thing, because if you sit there and you go, I think all gingers are the greatest people in the world, and you survey only gingers, you're going to get skewed data. Correct. Or if you don't like the number five, but and you constantly skip over that number when you're researching, whatever, your, your data, everything is going to be biased. So that... If, in my opinion, that's probably going to be the hardest part for anybody that's really trying to self-evaluate or actually go down the rabbit hole of trying to find evidence-based uh, decision-making um, statistics and everything to use. Because let's let's go human error. Human always wants what's best for them in the long run, right? You're looking out for numero uno, but you got to take a back seat to that and have an unbiased approach to a lot of this stuff because you don't right. want to skew it. Right. If you if you ask an oil and gas company, uh, are electric cars better than gas cars? 
they're going to be like, no, they're terrible. How could you say that? But then you go ask an electric car company like Tesla or, or, or Lucid or Rivian or whatever. Like, hey, are these better than gas cars? And they're going to be like, heck yeah, they are. Those yeah. are those are biased sources. You can't use those sources. You have to go out to the consumer, the mass public, and make sure your your data is not biased. So ask the question. Ask the question. Um, it involves converting your information into answerable questions. So there's a background question. This type is qu- of question is broad, basic knowledge question that can be usually answered uh, from information found in textbooks or any sort of uh, publication. Um, then you have the foreground question. That is a very specific question that's usually answered by investigating the research. So background right. question of like, hey, what is evidence-based you know, decision-making? Boom, you can find that in a textbook. Correct. Uh, foreground question is, is it useful? Right. That's a very specific question and you have to investigate uh, instances of evidence-based decision-making in businesses and see were they successful or were they not successful. Access the information by tracking down the best evidence which to answer the questions. So uh, a lot of people are like, just Google it. Well, the first what page of Google is really a biased research because they use... Uh, SEOs and AdWords and everything to try to pull you through. So you have to actually like go in and maybe do some reading, maybe do some research with some scholarly college letters, papers, reports, Britannica, if you want to do that. I don't know. I mean, whatever you need to do. Right. Like the first page of Google can be bought. So you might have to sit there and, you know, like, I don't you know, if you Google like, are potato chips tasty? Like your first, your the first thing that's probably gonna come up is a Lay's, a Lay's website going. Potato chips are the tastiest thing in the world. <laughs> you know, and then like later on down page one, you're gonna see some vegan, you know, vegetable <laughs> thing saying that's potato chips are the worst thing in the world. And uh, you just gotta make sure you sift through the sift through the sources and make sure they're actually good to go which leads us into interpreting or critiquing the evidence so during that next stage you've gathered all the data and you review it to attempt to make the unknown into something that is known so while you're analyzing the data it's helpful to organize responses into groups you have descriptive analytics which is reviewing the facts and summarizing your findings predictive analytics using past results to set expectations for future outcomes and prescriptive analytics, strategizing based on the data to choose the best course of action. Like descriptive analytics is like, you know, an NFL guy, uh, analyst saying, you know, Alvin Kamara runs for, you know, a thousand yards in the last three or five games. All right, cool. Got it. That's, that is descriptive. He, you could looked at the data. You looked at the five last five games. He ran for a thousand yards in the last three. Got it predictive analytics you could sit there and go based on that evidence i predict and and the the weakness of i don't don't know fucking (laughs) carolina being good this year yeah carolina's not not likely because it sucked and you're gonna go alvin Kamara is gonna run for over a thousand yards against carolina's defense boom that's predictive analytics and they have the prescriptive which is saying 
the coach going, hey, I think we should give the ball to Alvin Kamara because Carolina's <laughs> defense blows goat and he's ran for a thousand yards in the last three or five games. I think he could do it again. And that's going to help us win this game. Boom. Well, with your analysis, it's got to be impartial. It's got to be 100% impartial because you got to try to value each data set. So each thing that you just spoke about, you have to analyze like, all right, but all right, all that makes sense. All of that makes sense, right? So we can move forward. Yeah. Appra- appraising or critiquing the evidence is an important stage of evidence-based practice. Once the evidence is gathered, which you did, the researcher must critically critique each study to ensure it's credible, clinical uh, significance, as well as relevance to your clinical question. Critical appraisal is crucial to determining not only what was done, but how well it was done. So you look at your board, you look at your X's and O's, you look at this last season, you look at the trades that happened, you look at everything, and you want to take in consideration whoever is doing the sports analysis, whoever is doing the analytical uh, talking of the situation. Because if you get Joe Dirt off the street, you're not going to really take him as seriously if you was listening to Joe Matt, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then the other thing is, too, is, you know, like if the coach of the Cincinnati Bengals comes on there and goes, we're winning a Super Bowl this year. Guaranteed. Joe Burrow is in top shape and our O-line is great and our defense is amazing. Look, he's biased. He could be right, (laughs) but he's biased. He's coaching that team. Of course, he has to say that. But if you get some ESPN analytic like Colin Cowherd or or Stephen A. Smith or, or somebody like that, and they're like, hey, Bengals probably have the best chance based on these numbers to win a Super Bowl this year. That you can probably trust because you're like, all right, that data makes sense. Okay, they're giving him a chance. They're not saying it's a sure thing. They're giving him a percentage of the chance. Okay, I got it. That makes sense. That bias, that bias is pretty well removed. Well, yeah, appraising the evidence is important to consider factors such as what we was discussing is the currency of information, the time frame of this information. You don't want to compare 1949 to 2023 or 2024. That's not uh, that's not cool. Or shit, <laughs> Michael Jordan's better than LeBron James. I'll 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 say that all day, every day. <laughs> all right. You also want to factor in uh, any biases. Like I hate LeBron James. Said. There you go. That's a bias. We both hate LeBron James. That's a bias. Similarities. We both are similar, but if we had uh, a group of 30 of us saying the same thing, that's going to sound a little different than two people that blurt out, I hate LeBron James. Right. That's the size of the study. Right now, it's just two of us saying we hate LeBron James. I'm pretty confident there's going to be more people that say they like him more than hate him. And yeah. is it the right study? We hate LeBron James. Are we the right study for this? No. But it doesn't change the fact that we're right. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. But all of this stuff is, is showing you guys, right? Like, all of this, everything you guys hear, listen to, read, consume on social media, on the internet, on whatever, you have to look at the sources of what is being given. If, if you get a study sponsored by um welches to say <laughs> grape jelly is the best kind of jelly is that really a good study all right we studied ten thousand people and we found out that grape jelly is the most liked flavor of jelly bitch you're welches like you're gonna cherry pick the data fuck off 
That's a bias. Correct. Doesn't the work. Similarities are too close. Exactly. Exactly. But if you get, uh, you know, the FDA and they say, hey, we studied, we asked 20,000 people what their favorite uh, flavor of, of jelly is and they all said, grape. Okay, cool. Did it, it doesn't mean it's Welch's grape. It just says grape. Right. Perfect. Boom. That's a that's a good study. There's no bias there. There's the size of the study is good. Why is the study being conducted? Who the fuck knows? But it's one that I made up to so listen to me. <laughs> well, you gotta imply your insights. Oh, oh, that's that's a that's the final stage. <laughs> um, so in that final stage of evidence-based decision making, professionals execute their decisions and evaluate the results. During this stage, it's important to observe the response to your decisions objectively so you can honestly assess them. Internal data like key performance indicators or KPIs and uh, financial figures can help you decide if your decision has been productive for business. Meanwhile, you can use tools like surveys, one-on-one meetings, and personal observations of employee behavior to learn how the team feels about the decision. If you sit there and go, hey, I'm firing Frank because he's a... He, he's the worst at his job. He produces the lowest, lowest amount of widgets and the worst quality. If you fire Frank and your your production goes down, even though he was the worst widget maker by quantitative and qualitative numbers, maybe you come to find out he was the morale guy. He was the dude that lifted every other buddy's spirits to make you even more money than you actually realized. And it would have been better to fire um, Jim who nobody likes, but he's only, he's like the second worst widget maker. And you would have saved the same amount of money and your, your productivity would have went up. That's something you got to take into consideration. That that comes from, hey, personal observations. Hey, hey, um, you know, hey, Jerry, why did your production go down after I fired Frank? Like, ah, oh, well, you know, he used to keep me laughing, made the day go by quicker. It was a lot easier to work with. Now I just got fucking... I don't even know what his name I said. Tom or whatever. He fucking, he sucks ass and I hate him. And I hate looking at his stupid face. And so now, you know, my productivity went down. Like, ah, shit. All right. You know, go through your team. You're like, oh, shit. Maybe I should have fired Tom instead of Frank. That's definitely a a main portion of the whole uh, evidence-based decision making. Because you use the evidence to make that decision. But... You also want to evaluate to make sure that was the right decision you made. So I can understand that being the final um, process, the final stage in this whole process. Uh, you're not always going to make the right decision. Just like any other, if you go with your gut or you go with whatever, you're not always going to make the right decision. But that's the whole point of using the evidence-based decision-making to make those uh, decisions best for the company, your team, corporation, whatever you're working for. But there are some reasons why evidence-making decision uh, is important. Um, It can increase the likelihood of successful outcomes. Like you was discussing, if you fire the right guy, you could increase productivity, or if you fire the wrong guy, it could go down. Evidence-based decision-making encourage professionals to think through their plans carefully before executing them, reducing the likelihood of a hasty decision or a knee-jerk reaction. The approach also relies on hard data rather than feelings or opinions, making it easier to choose a reliable methods that are known to lead to success. Comprehensive evidence 
can help leaders minimize the risk when making company-wide decisions. So maybe everyone does like Jim or Fred or whatever name you choose. Maybe they do like him better, but that was their feelings. That was how they felt about that person. So evidence-based decision-making is taking feelings out of the out of the equation and just looking straight at data. Right. Now, of course, once we remove that chess piece from the board, the data shows that everything went down. Right. Right. So if we was to put Fred back and take the other guy out and production goes up, that shows that we made the right decision the second time instead of the first time. Right. But the, but you can also sit there and take into consideration um, surveys. Hey, who's your favorite team member? Who makes you the happiest at work? And if everyone sits there and says Fred or whatever name I chose, um, and you're like, ah, that guy is well-liked. And then you can put a question, who is your least favorite team member? And they all say, Jim, or whatever. You can be like, ah, that guy's a dick. Okay, now I can look at, you know, now I have data points. Yes, it is their feelings, but I have data points based on their feelings. But I know, know with, hey, he's the second worst widget maker. He's also the least liked guy. If I take him out, boom, maybe I would, you know, save the money I need to and... Maybe, uh, you know, I can retrain Fred and get him to be more productive. Right. I always, uh, I said this before, uh, I said this actually in real world. Um, I can train, you can train someone, quality, quantity, you can train that. You can't train someone's attitude. Right. Yeah, that's, and yeah, maybe one has a better attitude than the other. Who knows? Um, Another reason for evidence-based decision-making is important is it challenges assumptions. This approach to decision-making can help you expose you to new perspectives. Considering a broad range of opinions, data points, and anecdotes might expand your understanding of a given issue and help grow your empathy. It's crucial to resist the urge to act based on personal assumptions, as each individual's emotions, biases, and circumstances might limit their thinking Evidence-based thinking encourages you and your teammates to challenge your beliefs and come to a well-founded conclusion, right? So, again, if you're sitting there and you're like, ah, we all hate Frank, but he's the best widget maker you have and outproduces every other motherfucker out there by four times, I don't care about your thinking. Maybe we need to figure out why the fuck you guys aren't producing like, you know, Frank is or whatever, you know, and you sit there and you kind of relook at some stuff where you think, man, I know the reason why the Panthers suck this year. It's because they're in <laughs> Carolina and they fucking blow hard. Uh, I hate you so much. <laughs> <laughs> and then you sit there and you look at the evidence. And you're like, ah, no, they just suck at picking quarterbacks and they have no <laughs> offensive line. Okay, that makes sense. Their defense is one of the worst in the league. Okay, cool. That makes sense. Challenges your assumptions. You're like, oh, actually, the Carolina Panthers aren't the worst. It's actually the Houston Texans. Like, oh shit, I would have been wrong. <laughs> I did. A, I did. A, I did a study for one of my classes, and it was a statistics class, right? I my hate statistics. One hundred percent. But <laughs> I was required to make um, make a question and say like, and then ch- and then use statistics to back my assumption up. So my assumption was the Western Conference of the NBA is seen as currently the tougher conference in the NBA. 
I thought uh, so. I said the reason I think this is because they have a higher number of higher percentage um, free throw makers. So, like more of their players in the Western Conference make a higher number of percentage of their free throws, right? Now, maybe that was the wrong data point to go after, but that's what I went after, right? I was like, they're sitting there getting fouled. They're making free throws, which gives them more points, which makes them a tougher team to beat. Boom, boom, boom. Okay. I could have followed that up with how many fouls they get made versus the Eastern Conference. So I did, I did the research. I did the research of, you know, Western Conference free throw makers made (laughs) zero effect on the outcome of the games from a statistical standpoint but it challenged it had to challenge my assumption because i was like that that's the reason because watching the watching in that year i remember specifically thinking eastern eastern conference people don't make their free throws worth a shit they're they're (laughs) shooting in the 70 percentile at best most of the time meanwhile (laughs) the western conference is shooting in like the 80s to 90s that has to be the reason they're a better conference nope statistically Insignificant. <laughs> it was an interesting study that I did, but but it challenged my assumptions. That was that was my whole reason. Well, yeah. And then you looked at the information, analyzed it, and figured out eh, there's really not that big of a correlation. Right. Which is, you know, there's nothing worse than being like wrong, but it was, it was interesting to know. Well, another important uh, aspect of it is it leads to unbiased decisions. This method helps organizations make objective decisions that are best for the group as a whole, carefully weighing the options or using numerical or historical data to support hypotheses can help you make impartial choices. It can also help democratize decisions. When key decision makers rely on their own thoughts and feelings too heavily, it could lead to unbalanced or emotional decisions that could benefit some people more than others. Evidence-based decision-making alternatively takes their account, the opinions of experts and stakeholders to arrive to a fair, justifiable conclusion. Right. That basically is, I hate Fred to the nth degree, whatever. The team likes Fred. So if I didn't take my team into consideration, Fred would be gone just based off my personal opinion and thoughts and feelings about Fred, period. Right. It could be, hey, I walked past the desk and every time I walk past Fred's desk, he's never there. He's off, you know, smoking or, or, or you know, being with Joe Blow over the fucking water cooler or some shit like that. He's never at his fucking desk and I just hate the way his face looks. But when you start looking at the data, you find out Fred actually outworks all of your other employees, including the one you like the best, because we all like the one, you know, we all like somebody better than everybody else. And he outworks them four to one. Like, oh, fuck, I can't get rid of Fred. Like, he, he outworks everybody and he's well liked. All right, shit. Maybe I need to reevaluate. Maybe. I still don't like Fred. <laughs> yeah, agreed. Um, it. <laughs> It, uh, it can help increase employee engagement. Since this process encourages decision makers to consider the thoughts and feelings of the workforce before implementing new procedures or changing internal processes, it could increase employee satisfaction and engagement. Many people appreciate having their opinions heard 
as surveying the group before moving forward can help demonstrate that leaders care about the team's happiness and comfort. Thoughtful, informed decisions about processes and environment can also improve morale by improving business outcomes, increasing efficiency, or improving company culture. So if I sat there and I'm like, hey, guys, I'm making a new process. Everyone is now working. Instead of nine to five, we're all working from six to three. Oh, man. You know what? I like that. I like that. Yeah. Everyone gets a couple hours off early. You come in before there's no traffic. Everyone leaves before there's traffic. You get to see your kids earlier. Boom. That's the decision we're making. Fuck you and your feelings. I'm making the decision. And then you come to find out that don't shit don't work for everybody. Nah, I got kids in school. It's, uh, it's just it just doesn't work for my household, sir. Oh well, too bad. I already made a decision. But if I had taken your thoughts and opinions into consideration, and this is a basic <clears throat> tenet of change management, if I can get you to have a a input into the change that I want to implement, you're much more likely to accept it. If I can get you to own the change that I want to implement by giving me um, you know, some, in, some input, you're much more likely to accept the change that I want to implement. Versus if I just said, even if the input is good, even if the change is good, you're more likely to accept it when I give you a chance to give me input on it. Well, giving the input can also save money. What, what? It, it can be costly to test out solution after solution to learn what works best. It might be advantageous to use evidence-based decision-making because it reduces the need for experimentation. By reading case studies, exploring different books and research and learning how similar decisions affect other companies, you can increase your chances of making the best decision the first time. So could you imagine, like, let's try Let's try plan A. That didn't work. All right, let's try plan B. All right, that didn't work. Let's try plan C. You know what? Let's go back to plan A. Imagine how much time and money and everything has been wasted just going through. Will it- yeah. Um, I remember work when I worked for you, you had a boss, and he was like, we're going to do a new process. And the process is every shift has to get to a certain point in, the, in a, in a buildup, in a widget producing section. Uh, part of the process and that will allow us to reduce the amount of days it's going to take to produce a whole widget and I looked at his plan and I said boss this ain't going to work and he said yes it will you can easily do this I'm like nope it won't work I said you're not taking into consideration all the other X factors people have appointments people have vacation time you're assuming a robotic workforce that never needs to go to the bathroom that never makes mistakes that is always here operating at 100% it just doesn't work I said your assumptions are wrong I said now if you if you were to tailor this project this you know goal back by 10% we could make this work and he, he refused to believe it he said well everybody else is on board why can't she get on board I'm like I'm telling you this doesn't work based off the processes that I think is is there and he refused to listen to it. And I talked to you about it. I remember you talking to me about it. I told him, I was like, I told you, this isn't going to work. I will do my damnedest, but we will not make meet this goal. And did we meet that goal, Dice? No, nah, no, sir. That was a big negative. 
that was a big negative and I was able to pinpoint exactly why that goal was not met why was that irrefutable evidence of lack of worker bees again he assumed incorrectly that the that the worker bees were going to be there 100% of the time never have anything wrong never make mistakes never do anything he was assuming a mechanical workforce but we didn't have that we had a human workforce if I'm not mistaken, didn't someone go like on vacation or something for a lengthy period of time? Also yes. during that time frame? Yes. So, and if I remember, that person was actually like one one of the good ones. Like, yeah, we can always rely on this guy if yes. he's here. <laughs> yeah, 100%. That's exactly what happened. And I got questioned, why isn't this working? And I was like, what do you... And I said, and he even observed after that. He observed us for a week straight of uh, him, us trying to do his process and and came to the conclusion they're doing their best to try to make this work. There's just too many other things that I didn't consider when trying to make this change. Had he received our input, he would have saved time, he would have saved money, and more importantly, he would have had my trust and engagement. <laughs> but he didn't have it. You know one thing he didn't do? What's that? Come out and help. Yeah. <laughs> Weird. But uh, here's here's some tips that will help you implement evidence-based decision-making in the workplace. Investigate the question thoroughly before beginning. Take your time reviewing the circumstances you plan to address before you start formulating a plan. For example, if you're looking for a solution to improve employee attendance, investigate absences to learn the full context of the situation. It's essential that you understand the issue completely before you start researching the solutions because doing so minimizes the risk that you might miss a vital part of the situation like we were just talking about correct think think about what you're attempting to solve and what might be causing it as this information might inform your process again i got kids in school i can't show up here exactly at 8 30 i get them on the bus at 8 30 i could show up at nine though and I can work till five. Uh, it's so important that make sure you ask the right questions or, or field the questions beforehand because uh, you got to investigate the question thoroughly uh, before beginning. Uh, it's just such a broad statement to, to pinpoint exactly that question because it goes back to the background questions and the four, four, forefront. What was it called? Forefront questions? Foreground. Foreground questions. Because if you if you start off with the wrong questions to begin with, then your data's going to be skewed. You're not going to get yep. the right information you're looking for. And if you don't ask the right question, your answers are already going to be biased because you asked the wrong question because you are personally trying to get the stats that you want to work. Right, of course. Uh, um, it's, it's one of those things where you have to be cognitive of your own bias of the of the problem you're trying to solve, right? If I say, if I come to HR and I say, I have a problem with dice. He's he's always smelling like smoke. He's never at his job as distracting me from my work. Okay, your first gut instinct is like, all right, cool. I'll just swap you and dice or you or dice with somebody else and make it, make it better. Come to find out, it's not actually dice that's doing this. It's the person on the opposite side of dice, and they're the problem. And so if you move me or you move dice, you may solve the problem for one of us, but in reality, it's not either of us, and you actually have to talk to the other, you know, 
person that said, dude, stop eating up liver and onions and stop smoking all the damn time like a chimney. You're distracting <laughs> other people. If you ask the wrong questions, you're going to get the wrong answers. Well, that leads to the next part is you got a uh, next tip, should I say. You got to prioritize the proven facts. While it's important to consider every piece of data, factual evidence like numerical data and peer-reviewed research is typically the most reliable. Sometimes different data sources will offer contradictory insights. If you're unsure which data point to trust, choose to weigh facts and stats more heavily than opinions. Like, it could be your opinion that that guy smells like smoke all the time. Someone right. else is like, I, I enjoy cigars all the time. I think that guy smells pleasant. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, it's like, hey, this guy eats jalapenos and he points a fan on himself, but it blows in my direction. So all his farts, like his jalapeno farts, come blowing <laughs> in my fucking direction. That guy's a dick. And it could be just simple as like, hey, why don't you blow that fan a different direction? Like, oh, I didn't, I didn't realize I was making a problem. Like, oh, okay, cool. Or, hey, there's a proven fact that uh, the, you know, Brooklyn Nets lost in the first round of playoffs and will continue to lose in the, in the playoffs if they make it at all because Fuck. they've done that they've done that the last 10 years that, that is a fact <laughs> yeah I hate you <laughs> go Brooklyn <laughs> what else? Uh, uh, all this wraps up into evidence based decision making now is evidence-based decision-making the end-all be-all? No, it is not the end-all be-all, but it's definitely a helpful tool to have in your belt for any leadership to go through and look at the historical data, look at the current data, look at all the information that is presented instead of just going off a knee-jerk reaction or a gut reaction that could have a domino effect in a negative aspect for any organization or company. So. Yeah, the evidence-based decision-making is a great tool, but it's costly. It takes time to gather the data. Then you have to sift through the data. Then you have to weigh all those data points and then finally reach a conclusion. If you don't have that time, it might be easier, especially if you the decision does not require you to go through all that, to just go with the gut feeling. Like, hey, do we go with a uh, green paint on the walls for this baby room or do we go with like a gray neutral color like ah fuck it doesn't really matter what are we having oh we're having a girl or a boy like all right well um i think green is more relaxing so let's go with green doesn't matter, really matter let's go with the gut feeling you don't have to weigh those opinions but if you're like hey i want to change our entire warehouse structure and reorganize the entire flow of how we do something that's something that maybe should be taken into consideration. Like, let's do some evidence finding. Let's do some gathering. Let's figure out what the heck is actually going on down there. I think the evidence, you know, hey, I think the warehouse could be more efficient. Oh, okay, why do you say the evidence could be more efficient? Well, the shipments have to come from one side of the, of the warehouse by forklift or by hand on a hand truck all the way to shipping on the other side of the warehouse, and it's a quarter mile every single time. If we put the higher order, higher um, frequency ordered items closer to shipping, we can reduce our amount of time for grabbing all those items and putting you know shipments together, and it'll increase our productivity. Oh, well, that's a good idea. Let's do some let's do some fact finding and think if that's the right question. That's the right answer. 
that fits all that uh when you was talking about that it made me think of that lean process green belt yeah. black belt all that crazy stuff Sigma and six, all, six, six, yeah all that is based off of evidence uh decision making yeah because you're not going to willy-nilly just change out the warehouse because that's what you feel like doing that day that'll be kind of dumb to do it that way and if you watch any process of any kind of factory or whatever you want it to flow so it makes sense to have the evidence-based decision making especially when it is detrimental for our organization it's also detrimental to understand the final third of your cigar oh oh that is so good <laughs> that's a good segue good segue sir oh <laughs> uh, mine is ramped up i'm just letting you know yeah cocoa leather and black pepper oh man i i'm almost with you there my my cocoa is more of a spice to me i want to go cinnamony but uh, i'm gonna stick with a spice leather definitely leather and i'm i'm actually getting a kind of earthy tone on the back end i see the earthy tone yeah there's a spice there yeah, I definitely get it with that retro in hell. Yeah. I already know the answer to this next question based off the evidence of uh, previous historical data. Oh, oh, oh. Well, <laughs> do ask your question, sir, and make sure it's the right question to ask to get the answer you, that you want. Sir, the cigar you are enjoying at this mm. moment Mm -hmm. Would you say it is a box-worthy cigar, a mm -hmm. five-pack, or just one or two? Considering that I bought this in a five-pack, and I shared with you two of them, I believe, um, and I'm semi-regretting that decision because it means less for me to smoke. <laughs> I'm not mad would, at you. <laughs> uh, yeah, right? I would say this is actually box-worthy. Uh, 100%, sir. I agree with you. It's 100% a box-worthy cigar. This is so delicious so co uh, complex it's got right the right flavors at the right time just uh keeps you interested keeps you going uh it's a very very well balanced cigar ep creo does it again um it's not overpowering it's not super strong but it's packed full of flavor packed full of flavor uh and i'm not a huge fan of pepper and there's I mean, I could force pepper in it, but I went spice, and yeah, that's right up my alley. Yeah. No, this is delicious. The band is beautiful. It's got a nice emerald green band. Uh, everything everything's just great. I, lo I love this cigar. It's, it's delicious. I like the fact they went with like a green band because if I'm not mistaken, uh, green and blue aren't really great colors for cigar bands. Uh, but I think times are changing now anyway because there's so many different colors out there. The old school green and blue was not good color for cigar bands. But that is uh, a biased opinion because the green band actually fits this cigar. I think it looks great. I mean, and I look at, you know, like CAO Brasilia, right? That has a green band. Uh, AP Career of the Pledge, blue band. Uh, Southern Jaw Jacob's Ladder, blue band. Yeah. Um, pretty sure there's another green band out there i just can't remember it off the top of my head but yeah it, it's it's a beautiful band it fits the cigar well and i ain't mad at it that's true this is a good cigar very much so very much so i like it 
Yeah. Very delicious. So we talked about Plume versus Mold. And we hit you guys up with some evidence-based decision-making information. Heck yeah. So go out there. When you're trying to make a decision, if it's a worthwhile decision, try to use evidence-based decision-making. A lot of times, you might use it without even realizing it. But now you have a name for it. (laughs) And you'll impress your boss. And you're like, well, sir, based on my evidence-based decision-making process... I surveyed all these people. I looked at all these data points. I looked at our profitability. I looked at our widgets produced. Da, 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 da. And all of this to say, I think we should fire Frank. <laughs> but I like him. It would save us his entire salary and have minimal impact on production. Greg the Moon, though, sir. Well, I would, I would have to say it's a great episode. Very much so. All right. Until next time. I'm Austin. And I'm Dice. And remember, great leaders smoke great cigars. All right. Thank you for listening to Leadership of the Leaf. The comments and opinions expressed by the host and guests does not reflect the opinions of those that broadcast their show, nor does it reflect any of our affiliates.